The Cross-Reformation is taking place in the 16th century, starting with 1517 for the Luther's 95 Theses, and you could say 1555, roughly the date of the Peace of Augsburg, I think. Although that's the since Protestant, the Protestant Reformation or the formation of Protestant churches continues to today, so that's kind of artificial time. We'll be talking about the whole of the 16th century. The Reformation formation of a number of, of Protestant groups, which we lump together as Protestants, some of them do go together because they have similar theological ideas or, or church ideas. Some of them really don't. The Protestant Reformation is an outgrowth of the Latin medieval church. In some ways, the ideas that it has are not really that different from what was already inherent within Western theology, and particularly in the theology of Augustine, which underpins most Western theology in general. But in the Roman Catholic Church, you have, because the Roman Catholic Church is a continuation of the Orthodox Church in the West, there are many parts of of the Catholic Church that don't just spring from Augustine's theology. And then you also had some developments in the Catholic Church that were not really closely connected to Stinianism. One was the medieval development of the papacy, the papal authority, and consequently the papal authority aggregated to itself secular authority. You had a tremendous amount of corruption and abuse. So the actual start of the Reformation is just simply corruption and greed uh, within the church causing a scandal, which it did really from the high Middle Ages on. So you have this corruption. You also then have the, the papal doctrines which defend this corruption is the idea that the Pope uh, is the sole authority over the church in matters of faith and practice. So the questioning of the of the corruption becomes a questioning of the papal doct- the papal dro- doctrine itself, the papal monarchy, which of course is what caused the primary cause of the split of the Roman Catholic Church from Orthodoxy. The other elements that didn't uh, fit in with this Augustinianism was some of the theology of merit that had developed in the Middle Ages, in, as it related to the merit and purgatory which are a product of scholasticism. And it related to the start of the Reformation because the Pope was selling merits and selling uh, ways to get lower your time in purgatory as a way of raising money. And so Martin Luther, following his Augustinian theology, first off is seeing this as corruption for the sake of money, but second, as poor theology, as theology that doesn't mesh with Augustine's idea of the salvation being entirely by the grace of God. Augustine is essentially a kind of determinist. He Nowadays, we normally, the term we use is coming from the Reformation of a Calvinist, someone who believes in not only predestination, but in, in uh, God sort of controlling and, and bringing about everything that happens, and that there's no room for human will or decision in salvation. This view of God's uh, total control of the process of salvation really doesn't leave room for this kind of system of merits and payments that the papacy was was taking advantage of as fundraising. So the initial 
cause of the Reformation is not something external to the church, to the Western Christianity, but is, is a, a conflict inherent within within the Western Church. And the reason it led, of course, what could have happened was they could have had some theological discussions and debates and councils and tried to work it all out. But because the problem of the papal monarchy, which is essentially perhaps one of the fundamental heresy of the West, that left no outlet because for the, to, for resolving this theologically, because the, the the papacy could justify whatever it wanted to do by an appeal to its sort of total authority in all spiritual matters. But the theological tension is still within the, the tradition, so it caused a crisis, which, in a way, the popes at the time uh, and other authorities probably should have foreseen that this crisis could have, you know, needed to be diffused rather than pushed, but they didn't. Partly, perhaps, the logic of the, of the papal monarchy itself, that if everything, you know, God gave control of everything to the Pope and, and it's uh, a heresy to question the Pope's authority on anything, then why should the Pope back off on any decision he wants to make? Because, well, then he's giving up what's ordained by God. And, of course, that's the whole idea is what's heretical, so that it creates problems. Now, the Reformation resolved in, it comes up, so there's really three groups, but I would say, let's say two, start out, two basic Protestant Reformations going on at the same time. One is the, uh, one begun by Luther, which is, you could say, the Augustinian sort of Reformation, which is where you have, it's led by Roman Catholic priests and scholars like like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli. These were all people who uh, were Catholic monks or priests. They were trained theologians, and they were studying what the church taught and the church fathers, and they come to the conclusion, particularly dependent on, on Augustine's writing, and they come to the conclusion that the current church practice as supported by the Pope is not measuring up to the teachings of the of the church. So they are trying to reform the church's teachings according to the, its own Western theology. And this is the main portion of the Reformation that we're familiar with uh, historically when we're, we're reading. It's the one that's kind of the most visible historically. It's also the one that's the least Visible in America, although well, not invisible, of course, but uh, but it's not it's not the predominant one, although it influences the the main uh, stream here in America. But you have and and within it, you could you could say there's two streams within it that have some variation. The one is uh, Martin Luther, which goes to the Lutheran the Lutheran churches, which developed in northern Germany and. Uh, spread into Scandinavia, and that's where those those are the national churches of those countries today. And there are about seven million Lutherans in America today. The other side of this same movement kind of crystallizes around John Calvin, although there's plenty of other people involved. But uh, they both Luther and Calvin both believed in Augustine's doctrine of predestination. Uh, Calvin's form of of, the, of this branch of Reformation is more critical of the tradition and, and removes more of the tradition and, and focuses more on the doctrine of predestination. It's much uh, more kind of a logically coherent system 
Whereas Luther, in fact, was one of the things that he definitely wanted to preserve was the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and uh, actually wouldn't allow the early reformers, Zwingli before Calvin, he wouldn't allow a military alliance between the two because he considered that the reformers, if they didn't accept the real body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist, well then they, he didn't consider them as part of the, really the same church as he. But John Calvin's system has been the main drive of the church in the Reformed Church in Switzerland and Holland and the Church of, of Scotland, which we call the Presbyterian Church, and had a great deal of theological influence on the English churches later as, as well, as well as the, the Lutherans. But the Calvinist Church, because it was the, a Calvinist system, because it was such a coherent intellectual system, it was able to spread beyond any kind of church or national bounds. The Lutheran Church was essentially convincing the Roman Catholic priests and bishops and and princes of Germany that the Pope was doing them wrong and that there was too much corruption, so let's reform it. And and that, that so this essentially was the Catholic Church accepting certain reforms in Northern Germany. In Calvinism, I mean, they, it starts out the same, but because it, it's sort of a more of a pure intellectual system, it was able to spread. It went to Poland and uh, other places, uh, actually even one of the patriarch of Constantinople, uh, Cyril Lucaris, about 50 or 60 years after Calvin's death, uh, is a devoted Calvinist. Uh, so it, it's, it's a system that kind of appeals to a lot of people and because and becomes kind of basis of the Puritan movement within the uh, Church of England and the basis of the, of the Puritans in, in New England that, that settled uh, at the beginning of the country here. However, these are not, you know, the, the Presbyterian Church, the, the Reformed Church, the uh, Lutheran Church are not the main brands of uh, Protestantism in this country. They are historically the most visible type. And, and in fact, this Augustinian theology that they develop does carry through to what we have here, but the, but it's not the only tradition. So the Augustinian Reformation is the first part of this. The second is called the Annabaptist Reformation. Now most people say, oh well, Anabaptists, those refer to the Amish and the Mennonites and, you know, those are the, sure, there's a few, you know, these little groups that live in Pennsylvania and they're not really very important. You know, they're just some kind of marginal group. But, the Anabaptist tradition actually is the mainline Protestant tradition in this country, and in this country, as opposed to you know Europe. Europe, it, it is never really became very strong in Europe. It becomes uh, mixed with the, the theology of the Augustinian school, but it has certain peculiar characteristics that are different. The Anabaptist movement is not coming from theologians trained in Augustinian theology. It's coming out of the medieval this anti-clericalism, the this, this kind of scandal over the Catholic Church, and the sense that the, the Catholic Church was, was somehow evil, and that Christian society, uh, that, that Western Christian society, medieval Christian society was bad. The basic doctrine of an Anabaptist is it means rebaptized. Well, that doesn't sound, you know, say rebaptizing, so that's, that's such a big deal. Why is it? The, the difference is whether you consider, whether you in the 1500s now becoming a Protestant, do you consider that the people, your parents, 
who were Roman Catholics, were they Christian? Were you, are, are you Christian be, as the day before you become a Protestant? Well, the answer of the Augustinian theologians, of, of course, <laughs> they're in the Christian church. Uh, it's just that this, you know, has, there's been these accretions and problems and we're fixing the problems. And so the characteristic of these kind of mainline Augustinian churches is that they are still baptizing infants because that was the practice in the, in the Roman Catholic West. So they are reformers of a Christian society and a Christian church. Yes? They trace their, their history back through from basically the, the Roman Catholic and the Roman Church. Yes, exactly. That's an interesting thing about uh, uh, looking at John Calvin, you know, especially for, I came mean, from a Baptist background, was reading the Institutes and seeing that it's it's uh, so much, he's, he's all looking at church history. He's studying the fathers. He's drawing his whole conclusion on a study of the fathers, even though uh, they are going, Protestants will argue that the basis of all authority is the scripture. In fact, they do see themselves as a continuation and of, of, of the early church in the West and as a correction of current problems. Yes? Well, they were, they were reading, Calvin does read the Great Greek Fathers. He, however, um, because he's an Augustinian and he's convinced that Augustine is like the summit of patristic theology, he sees that the Greek Fathers are deficient and they're inadequate, and now, you know, we've got, we've reached Augustine, yeah. I recently read a book on sources that Calvin quoted, you know, the fathers and all. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really interesting, and he, he read just many, many, many of uh, his fathers. But it, his knowledge of, let's say, Gregory Nazianzus and Gregory of Nisa, for instance, he was, he got them confused sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, and, from a guy who was leading a major grant to the Reformation, that would be, from an Orthodox standpoint, that would be almost unforgivable. Yes. Whereas, you know, he, he never would have confused for Augustine as well. Exactly. It would be Well, the reason is because Augustine's a, a uh, important theologian, and these other guys were, you know, not, rare, you know, they were all inadequate, you know, Half baked, so they we don't really need to worry too much about them. Is the problem? Uh, this is kind of, I guess, a question I'll I'll, I'll going to address before I go on with this uh, with the Anabaptists is, you know, people often ask, uh, you know, well, you know, when Orthodox are meeting Protestants or Catholics, there's well, the question is, how do they feel about? I mean, to one sense, they, they look at the Roman Catholics, and the Roman Catholics have the same, you know, continuation of history and practice. They say, oh, yeah, we're just like the Roman Catholics. You know, you go in, we like candles. Well, the Roman Catholics come into the church, and they say, oh, how nice, you have a nice church here, and they go by candle, and they, they can sort of sympathize with what we're doing, as just we differ on some little points, they say, and, uh, but they recognize what we're up to and, and, and think it's good, and so we, are often sort of thinking, oh, well, yeah, we're like the Roman Catholic Church. But then, you know, we go and meet some Protestants, and they come in there looking very suspiciously, and, well, you people are some kind of pagans, you have icons, and what are you doing lighting candles and kissing things? And so we think, oh, those, you know, Protestants, they're really terrible, and they're nothing like us at all. Uh, In one sense, 
that's true. Part of what happened with the Reformation was Luther, in order to overcome the corruption, was sort of forced to jettison papal authority and ultimately to jettison everything except the scriptures. And so a lot of the tradition that came in from the early church was was pitched, not so much in the Lutheran church as in the, as in the Reform and other churches. So, But there is a, certain, a big break between the Protestant churches and the practices of the early church. And so in that sense, the Catholic Church is closer to us. Another sense uh, problem is that the Reformers, being Augustinians, were getting back to the theology of the early church in Augustine. And so they, the, the content of Augustinianism in Protestant Western theology is much higher percentage than in Catholic Western theology. So in both cases, Augustinianism to Orthodox is a foreign element but that foreign element is 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 much more uh, prominent in Protestantism. So we actually do have perhaps a more more of a theological uh, confrontation there. On the other hand, in certain other aspects, they are much closer to us. One for one, they agree. The major major problem of the Catholic Church is it has papal monarchy. That's why we're not in the Catholic Church. Part of the major reason. And that's why they're not there. So there's actually something we're much closer. The other thing where we're closer is the uh, scholastic theology dominates Roman Catholicism. To a certain extent, Protestantism tried to escape from that scholastic theology. It partially did not succeed. It, it's, it is scholastic in its outlook in some things. But Protestants at least have the ability to be sympathetic to a desire to escape from classism often. I'm mean, not everybody, but uh, but you'll have you'd have more in common in that measure with with a Protestant than you would with a Roman Catholic. So there's so it's it's complicated. Because the but the most people, uh, most especially native Orthodox people, just because of the first impressions of both people, they naturally assume, oh well, we're just like the Catholics and we're nothing like those terrible Protestant people who think we're pagans. But it's it's more complicated. You have to see that there's actually elements of theological agreement, or or some agreement anyway, with both of them. And that's when you're talking to these people, it's probably good to uh, go for those things where we have in common in order to somehow reach an understanding so that they don't just think you're you know, a witch doctor from someplace. So obviously, with both the theological problems, but you can you can deal with those if you first see that you're coming from something in common. Now, the Anabaptist tradition, it's coming from this rejection of medieval society, of the medieval society and church, and this rejection is expressed in the rebaptism. We are rebaptizing you. Okay, you want to be, you're a Catholic, you want to become Protestant, you want to come join our group. We rebaptize you because you were not Christian. Your parents weren't Christian. In fact, nobody in this whole town was Christian except until, you know, since the time of the apostles, really. And you're now becoming the first Christians in a very long time. The Roman Catholic Church, then, is, is a pagan institution. It's uh, often identified with the Whore of Babylon or something. It's not, nothing to do with uh, Christianity. And the society, the country we live in, you know, Christian Europe is, is not Christian. It's, it's nothing. So it, re, it reflects in... Rebaptizing in the sense that you now become Christian today, 
in our joining us. Second, in a desire to break with with European society, with Christ, so-called Christian society. <clears throat> Initially, this break included a military component in which the Anabaptists felt that they could just simply set up their own country that would be the new Israel and keep everybody else out. Unfortunately, uh, for that th- branch of theology, it uh, militarily they were wiped out. So, Having having been wiped out, they couldn't very well militarily succeed in, in carrying this out. So they uh, another alternative was if you if you can't uh, defeat this this apostate society, the, you can drop out of it. And this uh, dropping out results in a philosophy of pacifism. So one of the characteristics of the older Anabaptist groups that survived, like Mennonites and Amish, they are not in war, and they they don't, and they live a kind of separate life from the rest of the, of, the, of us. They because they are defi- define their Christian group in a way that excludes everyone else. Now they may nowadays have a more well, we don't really know about these, you know, not necessarily saying that everyone else is going to hell, but in general. The, the goal of the Anabaptist movement was to create this new Christian society, new Christian church, separate from the essentially uh, fallen Christian world in which they live. Now that type of pure Anabaptist uh, survived largely in America because they were persecuted not only by the Roman Catholics, but the Lutherans and the Calvinists, uh, and thought they were just terrible and, you know, were happy to uh, to get rid of them as well. So the uh, Anabaptists live in Pennsylvania and various parts of the, uh, the U.S. And they those groups are not a major, I mean, they're, they're an interesting component of America, but they are not what I'm referring to. The Baptist church and related churches in, in America, they have their origin in the 1600s in England, and they're not... Um, a pure descendant of this time, but they are a descendant of this ideology combined with some theology coming from this Augustinian Reformation. The um, origin, kind of basic mainline Baptist theology is Calvinist, but it also is rebaptizing, and it also has this sense of a kind of separation from historical Christianity that there was no Christian Europe. I mean, there's, a, there's no Christian world out there. <clears throat> there's, there's us, <laughs> the Baptists, and there's <clears throat> people related, uh, people because the Baptist type of people, they split up, and there's different groups that are um, Bible churches and evangelical churches that don't call themselves Baptists but are, but are similar. And that is the largest group of Protestants in this country, and mainly who you probably would be dealing with. In, around here, uh, the Baptists originally were very Calvinistic. There's a group that's still called the Reformed Baptists, which is what five for Calvinists. Mm-hmm. Although basically, as time went on, uh, they, they they dropped more and more of their Calvinism until they, you know, they're, they're really kind of a combination of Calvinism and you know, Armenian. So you yeah. know, it's really it's a real mix now. Yeah. 
Yeah, there actually was always a branch called the Free Will Baptist as well. But uh, the uh, other kind of form of the uh, Protestantism that we see in this country is the Anglicanism. And this comes from the same time period, the 1500s. It came about because the king was married, uh, King of England was married to Catherine of Aragon, who uh, didn't have a son. He wanted the Pope to grant a divorce, which would have happened gladly, I'm sure, for the Pope, other than the fact that at this time the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire was Charles V, who was Catherine's uh, nephew. And at the time, uh, Charles you know, was having some disagreements with the Pope and had brought his army down to Rome to help the Pope see, you know, what was the right thing to do. So, <laughs> so the Pope was not able to grant this uh, favor to King Henry. So King Henry, who was himself a very staunch Catholic, decided, well, we're breaking with the Pope. Now, that wouldn't have been a problem. You know, they would have probably just gone on as a national Catholic church, except that he found that his Catholic subjects were not particularly trustworthy and loyal to this decision of his, whereas he found lots of very helpful people that he otherwise formerly had been persecuting who now would come and say he was the greatest king and that would help him a lot. And these people were followers of Luther and followers of Calvin. And so you had the problem of this, this Roman Catholic king who... Uh, probably would like to just go on being Roman Catholic, but he, but his most trustworthy and zealous helpers are all people who want to spread Lutheranism and Calvinism in his country. So you end up with a strange, strange church, uh, which is it's just created essentially by political expediency, but that allowed for a very wide range of opinions at times. But the uh, when the... Protestant, let's say the Calvinist Lutheran element was in the ascendancy, you know, they were not particularly uh, tolerant towards those who were pro-Catholic. But they, So you had a, a kind of conflict that kind of went back and forth depending how each monarch felt at the time about their different sides. One of the things that, that really caused, let's say, the victory of Protestantism in England was that the Pope in 1570 decided to depose Elizabeth by decree, told all and ordered all her Catholic subjects to rebel against her, you know, in order to help out his other Catholic kings who were supporting him. So that made uh, Queen Elizabeth decide that perhaps, you know, not so much freedom of, of thought was good and, and that she would want people to be Protestant rather than Catholic. So that's where uh, a lot of the persecution of Catholicism in England came about. And why, for a long time, the main trend of the Anglican theology had a very strong Calvinist bent to it, although it has fluctuated in the English Civil War, part of that fluctuation. Just kind of for your interest is one of the ways that this all happened was because the, well, Charles V was the Holy Roman Emperor and you could say, well, he was Catholic. I mean, he probably would have been willing to work with the, the Lutherans in Germany, except that he also owned territories in a lot of other countries, particularly Spain. And because this is the time when the, right, we're after Christopher Columbus now, and 
Vasco uh, da Gama. So we're at a time when wealth is starting to come in from the Atlantic. Spain is the most important part of his dominion. So he stuck with the Pope and tried to suppress Lutheranism, except for the fact that this was also the high point of the Turkish conquest. And remember we talked last time about 1453, fall of Constantinople. Well, the Turks just kept going, and they arrived at Vienna in 1529, or just outside the gates. And so Martin Luther had written his, uh, his thesis in 1517, and there was a, a hearing, and the Pope was expecting the Emperor to get rid of all the Lutherans, but meanwhile the Turks were attacking Vienna, so he needed uh, German troops to come and help him fight the Turks. So that's why... For a long time, there was no decisive struggle against Protestantism because the emperor was in need of, of German support. And then you also had the rivalries between the Pope, Germany, and the France. And, and so Protestantism was able to spread in France and other places pretty well until about, you know, about the 1570s is when a number of countries decided to start cracking down on it, and that was France, you had the Huguenot Wars, the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day uh, Eve, which was the uh, massacre of the Protestants. Then in the, in, in the Netherlands, you had the Spanish armies come in to try to, because the Netherlands belonged to the emperor, too. So he had, they'd been tolerant of Protestants up to this point, and then they decided that they would use their armies to force everyone to become Catholic. And so you begin the period of religious wars that then move in the 1600s, go over into the... Uh, Thirty Years' War in Germany. Okay, well, this is kind of a, a quick uh, survey. I don't, does anybody have any questions about Protestantism or Orthodox view of, of it or the development of it? They are much. They are much more modern uh, group. There. I guess I would consider. Those type of groups as an outgrowth, in some ways, of the Anabaptist tradition. Um, it's also, in modern times, you have the fundamentalist liberal, which is coming out of sort of classic dynamic. But, okay, well, the, what happens with, with Protestantism is you have this reliance on Scripture alone, and then you and a complete break. And the more you break away from church tradition, I mean, the Augustinians, by holding to church tradition to a certain extent, and saying, well, no, we're we're just kind of preserving the truth that Augustine said, that means you, you know, deviate too far. But the further historically you get away, especially in the Anabaptist side, where you just don't think there was anybody else and you don't need to listen to anybody else, well, then that opens all kinds of doors to everybody could just interpret it how they want. So you end up with Jehovah's Witnesses and, you know, everybody looking at the Bible and the Bible alone, and then I can make up whatever interpretation I like. Yep. Like the comments some also on the uh, closing down of the Benedictine monastery. That you see oh. that have a big impact also on the in, spirituality and in England. Yes, um, of course. The King Henry uh, he closed down the monasteries to and sold most of the property actually into uh, yeah. So that there was a that uh, of course pushed the government onto the side of the Protestants much more by. And naturally alienating uh, the Catholic side of the country, and and also breaking 
I mean, the, in a way, the, the iconoclasm of the of the Protestant Reformation in, in England it causes this tremendous uh, break in in piety and uh, with with the, from the medieval era. There's an excellent book about this called "The Stripping of the Altars." Duffy, okay, sorry, Duffy. But that that talks about this uh, translation transition in England. Did you have a question? Translation is two connections. Did they spread by uh, taking over already existing churches or parish by parish or bishop by bishop or forming new churches? No, they. Well, this this side here, it's the it's existing churches. So these people, I mean, essentially what happened is you had all these parishes. Okay. if you were a really devoted person, you would you would want to have a good minister in your parish who would uh, preach the real you know teachings of the, of the fathers, not some you know corrupt stuff that we have now. So there was a, it was a sense of reform that went on in this uh, you know really up into the time of the English Civil War. Now in in Anabaptists, obviously these were people setting up their new communities because they reject I mean they rejected that the old communities were churches. So you had to go out from those sinful places that were not Christian. Whereas here, they saw themselves, they were part of this church, and they were in the process of, of uh, cleansing it. Anything else? Okay. My impression is that in places like Germany and Switzerland, that Luther Calvin would convert the princes, mm-hmm. and then the princes would say, okay, my territories are now processed. Is that correct? Yes, and actually, um, but the, the, the re- resolution with the emperor was essentially to, because Germany is made up of all these little principalities. So the way the deal they, they made was, okay, whatever, whatever, whether if the prince wants to be Protestant or he wants to be Catholic, uh, that you know that'll decide which church is in that that principality, and that's. So I mean, initially, of course, Luther was appealing to the. Uh, Rulers and aristocracy of Germany, but but it became formalized. So. You wouldn't have had a Protestant church in this corner and a Catholic church in that corner. Yeah. Not no no. You you would have just had the church that was always there, and whether it was going to be. I mean, because they didn't see it in a way as two separate churches, but whether the church was going to have uh, good good teachings or you know not so good teachings. <laughs> Yes, but, yeah. I, well, in the, in the Catholic Church it was by church funds, and then but in the Protestant world, because they, part of the things that they got rid of was monasticism and a lot of church land. It became the government in the in the uh, Lutheran territories that supported the the church. Okay. Oh. Religion divided up. The yeah. Southern part was much more Catholic. Right. And the northern part, especially the Vietnamese, much more Catholic. Right. And I know it. I remember that they each individual friend. Yeah. They kind of decided. Right. Yeah. But is there a reason why the north? Yes, I think so. I think it's. I think it's military. I think the uh, the emperor was in Vienna, and he was able to the earliest Protestant, you know, the centers of Protestantism in the Netherlands were in Belgium. But their, the area is flat and easy to work, and so the Spanish armies were able to dominate that area. 
and the Protestants were able to hold out up in the, up in Holland because of that. So uh, partly it's just geography.